0: AIDS was first diagnosed in 1981. At the time, and I don't know if this rings a bell or not, but it was widely misunderstood and even more widely misrepresented by powerful voices in politics and business and in society. These powerful voices were trying to minimize the threat it posed to how they did business. And they were also trying to marginalize and ostracize the victims, all the way asking, how are we going to pay for all this? But the suffering caused by the 1980s HIV epidemic was enormous, and it was widespread. So, a social movement was born demanding universal access to medication for people living with the disease, and it won in 2001, 20 years later, when the United Nations General Assembly declared that everyone had a right to treatment. And just a few years later, more than 4 million people in poor countries were benefiting from what was until then drugs for the rich. Now, obviously, no one should diminish today, in 2023, the struggles some HIV sufferers still face in terms of getting access to medicine. But we have to respect the astonishing success of that generation of HIV campaigners. And we, in the sometimes bungling and stumbling and inefficient climate movement, need to learn from their example. And this is especially the case today when a very popular question in fighting climate change is, but how do we pay for it? How do we pay for what we need to spend to fight climate change? Now, I disagree with the question on principle, and you'll know why a bit later in this episode. But for now, let's just say we know we need to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. And I mean up to 100% of the world's oil, gas, and coal. But even today, We still get over 75% of our energy from the very oil, gas, and coal. And coal still makes up the largest source of electricity. So, how do we go from where we are to 100% renewables as soon as possible? And stated differently, how do we mobilize the roughly $2 trillion a year that we need to pay? for the Renewables Revolution. Welcome to episode 74 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Asad Rizouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. So let's go back to the HIV movement first. The social movement won because of Research shows to be five principal factors. First, it focused on focusing only on big pharma. That's big, bad pharmaceutical companies that were basically ripping off everybody by pricing the drugs in a way that most of the world could not afford them. So the campaigners did not go after Other companies or hospitals or politicians or the media, even though each one of these was to a certain extent implicated in what was going on. So the campaigners zoomed in on Big Pharma's weak points and then they attacked it relentlessly for favoring profit over people. And I hope that rings a bell for those in the climate movement, because we have the same problem. Big, bad companies favoring short-term profit over your life and mine and those of our kids. The second reason the HIV movement succeeded was because they crystallized their movement to a very simple and compelling message which they repeated constantly, and that was that the drugs necessary to fight HIV were essential for life. A simple, compelling message. Third, they were coherent, because what they did is they focused on clear goals based around universal access to treatment and pushed for a sufferer's ability to pay to be ignored. The fourth reason they succeeded is because they convinced the public and politicians in many countries that the cost of effecting change was low because all these countries had to do was manufacture cheap, generic drugs as they could, if not for big pharma. And the fifth and final reason they succeeded is because they pushed the world to create what's called stable institutions that give the movement permanence. The main institution to come out of that fight is the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, which is still around to this day and has saved over 50 million lives and spent billions and billions of dollars to accelerate the end of the three diseases. AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. So take the lessons from the fight against AIDS and then apply them to the fight over climate change. That is a straightforward exercise. It means, first, we narrowly define the targets of climate action. I mean, we know, of course, that emissions come from many activities. We know they come from oil and gas and coal. And we know that they are across pretty much all of our industries. But we can't go and focus on the building industry and the steel industry and the airline industry and the shipping industry and this industry and this other industry. There are too many targets. And what we need to do instead is focus on just 90, that's nine zero companies, Because just 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of the harmful emissions generated since the industrial age began. And by and large, these 90 companies are irresponsible. They are reckless. They are out of control. And basically, 100% of their reserves must be locked away permanently. That's 100% of their reserves. In other words, they can keep producing what they're producing, and even that's going to be phased down, but no new oil, gas, or coal must be produced and sold by these companies. They are powerful opponents. They lobby hard to prevent climate action. They spend billions to confuse us. They spend billions more To distract us, they spend billions more to buy influence. And they are at the very center of the model of intensive carbon use that's destroying our ability to live on this planet. So there is your small target on which to focus your energies. And then, just like the HIV movement showed, we need to focus on people and specifically on our right to life. We should focus on the human rights violations, which are incredibly widespread, of these 90 companies. And there is a challenge there, because the damage caused by fossil fuels is not properly and universally understood. For example, the largest 3,000 companies in the world cause 2 trillion dollars of environmental damage each and every year. For example, the World Health Organization estimates that 7 million people die each and every year from breathing, the result of what happens when we burn oil, gas, and coal, and that costs us another 3 trillion dollars a year so that's 5 trillion dollars right there in annual costs and also for example remaining on fossil fuels could cost 100 trillion dollars because how the hell do you put a price on the arctic heating up for example and frankly in any case you have to keep in mind that when human rights are being violated costs must take a back seat. And to understand what I mean, think about the Atlantic slave trade. Yes, it was extremely costly to end the Atlantic slave trade, but who bloody cares? The costs to end slavery were immaterial, not relevant, not part of the conversation, because slavery had to be stopped. And so climate campaigners simply have to focus like laser beams on the main culprits, the 90 companies, and on how we can shrink their market capitalization by making their money much more expensive. Because they still have access to this day to hundreds of billions of dollars of very cheap capital, and they are using it to dig more oil, gas, and coal, and burn it, and burn us while they're at it. The fourth lesson from the HIV fight is that the price of change has to be low, and in the context of climate, this isn't very difficult, because as I said, all we need to do is increase the price of their money. Now, how do you do that? You do that by a combination of actions, which include peaceful protests, but also a tsunami of lawsuits on pension funds, for example, who are Mispricing climate risk because they keep assigning value to the 90 big polluters based on these future supplies. And this is underway. It's actually happening. We just have to accelerate the rate of change. And then the fifth and final lesson from the HIV fight is that we need stabilizing institutions. In other words, we need properly funded institutions that are able to pay for all this and pay for the climate adaptation zillions that are required to deal with the consequences of what these 90 companies have already created in terms of a climate mess. And so how do we pay for it? Well, you should think about it under the headline, Tax the Bad Actors. That can take several forms, all of which are being discussed but not with enough intensity in my view some examples of this tax the bad actors approach would be to penalize emissions for example from the shipping industry through a levy on these emissions that the shipping industry would pay similarly we should impose a fee on oil exports we should impose another fee on gas exports. Now, yes, it's difficult to do it, but this or something similar is going to happen because there are trillions of dollars in finance that would be unleashed by doing that. There's also voluntary contributions that could be aggregated by United Nations institutions. For example, voluntary contributions by airline passengers, volunteer contributions by cruise ship passengers, which is how the global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria was initially funded. Or you can have a tiny, tiny levy on stocks and bonds and derivative transactions carried out by banks. There's hundreds of billions of dollars that could be raised each year if you only had a levy of 0.01 cent on every transaction. But personally, I do prefer taxing oil exports, taxing gas exports, and most importantly, by far, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies globally. There's about a trillion dollars of cash subsidies to the oil, gas, and coal industry that are paid out each year. A trillion dollars. There's also a lot more that institutions like the World Bank and the IMF can do to drive far more money into the energy transition. And a very interesting proposal called the Bridgetown 2.0 Agenda is Right now, in front of a summit in Paris that is bringing together the heads of government from more than 100 countries to try and drive more money towards climate action, and Bridgetown 2.0, which is an initiative by Barbados, is very much designed to unlock trillions in private capital for dealing with climate change. These are more sophisticated ideas than simply taxing the bad actors because Bridgetown 2.0 aims to create, for example, currency exchange guarantees or add disaster clauses to debt deals and change some of the current rules of the international monetary system to allow much greater lending from institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. And here's another example of some of the conversation around how are we going to pay for it. A wealth tax of just 2% annually on those who make more than $5 million a year generates something like $2 trillion a year. And if you don't believe this is actually possible, did you know that there are groups of millionaires called the patriotic millionaires and millionaires for humanity and Tax Me Now, for example, that have been clamoring for their governments to actually tax them more. So look, I'll say this as politely as I can. We have all the money in the world to pay for climate action. And what the hell are we still waiting for? As you've heard, we need to focus our energy on the nasty 90, because if they change, everything else will change. And as you've also heard, we have so many tools to pay for the energy transition, starting from eliminating a trillion dollars a year of cash fossil fuel subsidies to taxing bad actors, to voluntary contributions by citizens who can, to taxing wealth in various form, whether it's directly or through tiny levies on stocks and bonds and derivatives. This is an open and shut case, and what it is indicative of is the fact that we are still running away from solving climate change by just finding excuses for inaction. And this has to just stop. Thank you so much for listening to this episode 74 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy and sometimes very angry clean energy guy with me, Esad Rizouk. And have a great day couple of weeks.